Well, look, I've got good news for you today and bad news. What would you like first? Bad. Who'd like good? Anyone like good? Oh, the delusional people. Yeah. It's interesting. People uh, ask that question pretty often, don't they? And uh, those who are realists kind of, when someone goes, uh, it, sometimes you hit someone who just wants good news all the time. Does anyone know anyone like that? If there's anything bad, I, I don't want to know what it is. All right? And we kind of go, well, you're in denial. And then you hit people sometimes who don't really care about the good news. And they just want bad news all the time. And you say, well, you're pretty depressed. True? Does anyone know anyone like that? They're just like, bad news is a magnet, or they're a magnet for bad news, and it kind of gets sucked in and sticks to them. But you know what's really interesting is no one likes a story that only has good news or only has bad news. Is that true? You don't. Everyone likes a story that's got a little bit of bad news and a little bit of good news. Because the magic is in a story that's got a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news. Um, the other night, actually, uh, Friday night, my wife and I watched a really pretty touching movie, and you can surmise why we found it so touching, but it was called uh, Still Mine. I don't know, has anyone seen that? No? Well, if you had, you would have forgotten about it. No, not really. It's about Alzheimer's. <laughs> so it's, it's basically about this 80-something-year-old uh, couple, and uh, the, uh, the wife gets Alzheimer's. And so it's this progressive thing and the 86 or 87-year-old husband is building a new house for his wife because uh, she falls down the steps in the old one if she forgets where she is and the house is just not suitable. And the whole movie is this kind of juxtaposition between what's, what's good that's happening and what's actually bad that's happening at the same time. And that's what made the story so magic. Um, and to see the love of an 80-something-year-old man who's been married once for his wife who's forgetting who he is... Was, uh, was pretty magical. But it, it's magical in the sense that there's bad things happening and there's some kind of um, protagonist that's able to get past the bad things. Because uh, every story's got a protagonist and an antagonist. So if you want to just put it this way, the good guy's the protagonist, the bad guy's the, an the antagonist. And uh, what we find in stories is that there's a good side, there's a bad side. Now, here's the bad news. It's really going to be hard for you to make it as a Christian. No, no, like I mean it. Like it's going to be really hard. And, and at this point, I'll just ask you, I wonder if you've ever felt that. I wonder if anyone here has ever been tempted to give up. Like, do you have any idea what you're up against? Do you have any idea what forces you're contending with? These are massive forces, they're strong, they're relentless, they're persistent. Like, if you've ever seen, has anyone here seen uh, Lord of the Rings uh, Two Towers? This is like the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? It's like you can take out the first 3,000 orcs and there's still another 50,000 coming, all right? And by that time you're getting really tired. This is kind of what life is like. If you're a Christian, this is what it's like, all right? There's a continuous assault that's going on. Now, on paper, I would say to you, you're not going to make it. Like, if you looked at it on paper, if you looked at the things that are arrayed against you, you would look at it on paper and you'd just go, look, that's just not going to happen. You won't make it. 
So let me give you a bit of a sense of the antagonists that are arrayed against you. Here they are. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I'm going to explain each of those. But I just want to look firstly at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, which speaks about the effect of these three on us. Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, you read that. Now, Paul's not talking about a Christian, right? He's talking about someone who's not following Jesus. But let me, let me just say this thing. You live theologically in the already, not yet. So the death of Jesus has happened on the cross. Things have been sorted out ultimately for you, but there's still a mopping operation going on. And anyone who can actually sit there today and just go, the world, the flesh and the devil have no impact on me is probably a little bit delusional, I would suspect, because they still do. Uh, I think a a number of sermons ago, I talked about how uh, after the Second World War was finished, there were still Japanese soldiers that were fighting in the jungles. After every war, there's a mopping up operation. You're in the mopping up side of the operation. Has the battle been decisively won by Jesus on the cross? Yes. Do you still get buffeted by the world, the flesh and the devil? Absolutely you do. So I want to look at these really quickly because I want you to see what's arrayed against you. Here's the first one. The devil is against you. If you don't follow Jesus here today, all you need to know is this. God created beings. He called them angels. And a bunch of these angels decided they didn't want to follow God anymore. They didn't want him to be in the centre. They wanted to be in the centre. Now, it's impossible that anyone else would be in the centre. God's the only one that can be in the centre. So they split away. Now, you might ask, how many of them are there? Well, a third. And you go, a third of what? And I would say, that's right. There's a third. All right? The top dogs is is the devil himself, and then he's got a bunch of helpers, and we call them demons now. They used to be angels. He is a major, major antagonist. He is out to get you. He's in it only for himself. He's not interested in your well-being. He's not interested in what's good for you. He's only interested in what he wants to do and the mess that he wants to create out of the good stuff that God does. So it's no surprise in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like what? A roaring lion. Now, I'm just telling you, if there was a roaring lion walking around this building, we'd be pretty frantic, right? We'd make sure all the doors are shut and then we'd be asking questions like, does anyone know how thick the panes of glass are on the windows? <laughs> all right? Because that thing could just come through it. What's he interested in? He's actually interested in devouring. He's interested in destruction. All right? He would want nothing more than for you to be destroyed. The best thing that could ever happen to him, to some degree, I would say, is that he would actually bring shipwreck of people whose allegiances are to God. And you know what? He's strong. Let me tell you some things that he actually does on the face of this planet. You only need to go to Job chapter 1. Job wreaks, the devil wreaks havoc with Job's life. He brings misery and destruction upon Job in the physical realm. You go to Luke 13, 11, and there's a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 
The devil can actually disable people physically. Genesis 3 is the fall of mankind. It's clear that the devil can tempt people. And the scriptures are clear that the whole world, to some degree, is within his control. Not only that, but one of his other tricks is he gets unbelievers and he plants them in the church to make a mess of it. And some of us have probably been in churches where that sort of stuff has happened. Now, I'm not saying that it's someone that's not following Jesus and it's really clear they're not. No, it's going to be someone who says that they're following Jesus and they make a mess of the church. He does that sort of stuff. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says this. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, and he does say in 2 Corinthians, the ultimate reason why people don't become Christians, one of the ultimate reasons, I should say, is that they're blinded by the devil and they don't see what they need to see. On top of that, you've got in the Gospel of John that where Jesus says that the, uh, the devil is the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, Jesus would say. So he just goes around lying and tricking. Anyone here ever been tricked into thinking something was true when it wasn't actually true? Yeah? Anyone ever been tricked in a temptation where there was a temptation to disobey God and you kind of had a sneaking suspicion it wasn't right, but you went with it anyway? And then you get to the end of it and you just go, this, this is bitter. This is a bitter thing. But at the, at the start, you thought this is going to be sweet. He's gunning for you. But that's not the end of it. The Bible talks about your flesh. And it talks about the flesh in reference to believers. So there's a sense in which your heart can be changed by God, but there's a residual flesh within you that wants things that are not helpful. And we see this kind of mechanism operating in Romans 7, 18 to 19. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Not only is the devil gunning for you, but your own flesh, your own sinful side that still remains the mopping up bit is gunning for you as well. And I would ask you this morning, what are your signature struggles? If you're old enough, you probably haven't committed a new sin for a number of years. True? It's just the same ones. I know what mine are. And I know it wouldn't take that long for me to go down on my signature struggles. You kind of know what they are. Do you know what I'm talking about? You could probably know maybe three or four areas and it's like they're probably the areas if you're going to go, you're going to go on that stuff. And like what happens? Well, it comes up every now and then. Maybe three or, every three or four months you just kind of go and there it is again. And you know it's there because when it, it's like Whenever the temptation comes again and the trouble comes again, at that signature struggle point, it's specifically tender, like it's a weakness area. What tends to get you? What do you fall for? What gets you every time? These are the things, they tend not to go away, have you noticed that? And they tend to be pretty successful. And it's just like... I don't know whether you've ever had this experience, but I've had this experience lots of times where you just go, what the hell was I thinking? Like, that is the same thing that happened five years ago. That's the same thing that happened five minutes ago, five days ago, five hours ago, 
and I'm gone for it again. It got me again. How stupid am I? And you get that kind of sense from Paul in Romans chapter 7 there. You see, there's a sense in which our own flesh actually wages war against us. This is 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It exists in there and it wages war against you. So the devil's gunning for you. Your own flesh is gunning for you. And the last thing is the world. Here's what John writes in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And all of you say, Amen, yeah? Amen. Because that's easy. Can we just go on to the next one right now? Because we got that one sorted out. Well, yeah, okay. We live in a capitalistic kind of materialistic economy, but we've got it sorted. Um, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The devil's gunning for you, your own flesh is gunning for you, and the world is gunning for you. And you just need to think about the magazines, the images. Isaiah 5 verse 20, it's an amazing scripture. It says this, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for night, for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the world we live in, right? It's a world that calls bad good. And they're not just interested in calling bad good. They want you to believe them and they want you to agree with them. And it's not just the blatant stuff, but it's the progressive stuff, right? I mean, I think probably the most wearing stuff from the world is actually the progressive stuff that just keeps coming at you time after time after time. I remember when I went to uh, Bali the most recent time, we spent a week in... uh, in Java, with Jakarta, which is a very much a Muslim kind of uh, island in um, Indonesia. And I didn't even notice it. Um, but for a whole week, because it's a Muslim, and I'm not, I'm not for a second suggesting that we do this, but for a week, we had uh, females around the place who were very, like, ultra-modestly dressed because it's a Muslim island, all right? And the really interesting thing was... Um, I didn't even notice it until we got back to the departure land at Denpasar Airport where the Australians were going home. <laughs> and it was a completely different story. All right? And I'm not saying anything about that in particular except for the fact that we live in a hyper-sexualised culture across the board. Um, and I would love to read you a quote about that, but I don't think I'm going to because we've got a few too many younger people here but you just need to know it's 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 a big big problem and I don't think you've heard me say this at the project if you've been here for a bit a bunch of times you don't ask a goldfish what the wetness of water is like because I don't know anything else and I think for me the real benefit of going overseas that time was to be in a completely different culture and just to realize I'm actually really immersed in stuff and that's kind of the way the world works right it gets around you it's there all the time it's there when you wake up it's there on the advertising on the side of the news article that you're reading on the internet. It's just, it's there all the time. And they're continually trying to persuade you and educate you about what the right thing is to do. I mean, a really um, clear concern in America is the whole issue of, of uh, bracket creep, all right? And bracket creep in America is the uh, bracket creep that actually goes on from one level of ratings of movies to the next. And the big idea is basically there's people over there campaigning 
against bracket creep because what actually happens is you've got M-rated movies slipping down into PG and then down into G and you've got stuff coming up that's really interesting. I mean, even to the point where you've got the movie Hop, um, which I think is a G-rated movie, the uh, bunny shows up at uh, Hugh Hefner's place, all right, the Playboy, the Playboy Mansion, right? Now, that's really interesting, but that's actually slipping down into a really low-rated movie at this point in time. But this is the way the world works, all right? You don't have to live very long to notice this. And I've had uh, some, peop- some students in the school when I was working at the school who had come up and talked to me about an R-rated movie that they watched that was like 30 years old, and now that's kind of like an M-rated movie, maybe, um, just for the violence. So you've actually got that going on. On top of that, what actually happens in the church is a little bit similar to, uh, to what I'd, I'd mentioned before about the devil, is that the world actually gets into the church sometimes. False prophets in the Old Testament were uh, people that got into God's people and started speaking to God's people and they weren't the real deal. Listen to this, this is from Jeremiah 6. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed healed the wound of my people, lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. That's an amazing phrase, they did not know how to blush. I mean, that would be a very good summary of our culture, would it not? That we don't know how to blush. We've, uh, We've lost the ability to some extent to be ashamed of things that are shameful. And uh, there's another scripture in the New Testament that talks about people glorying in their shame. That's us. I think that's us as a culture. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall at that time. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. That's Jeremiah 6. And you know what? What happens is the world gets into the church. People come in and they preach a corrupted view of the gospel of the truth about Jesus. Some of them add rules that aren't in the Bible and others add freedoms that aren't in the Bible. And it's, and it's dangerous and they lead other people astray. I mean, Jesus told the parable himself about how weeds or the tares get sown amongst the wheat. Now, do I have... Am I gunning? I'm not gunning for anyone. All right? Do I have a list? Do we have a list of five people that we think are false Christians causing trouble? No, we don't. But we need to be aware of the fact that this sort of stuff actually happens. And one of the things I think, when you're talking about the world and you're talking about people, that's particularly dangerous. You know what that is? Is grumbling and complaining. Have you ever noticed it's really difficult to stop a complaining person? And it's really easy to join them. I mean, part of the difficulty of stopping a grumbling person is who they're going to grumble about if you stand up to them. Well, they're going to go and grumble about you, aren't they? And what's grumbling? Grumbling at the end of the day is this is what I really want and I'm not getting it. Now, I'm just going to make it a little bit worse before I uh, give you the good news. I want to suggest to you, in the past, I've heard preached lots and lots of times that each of these three things, the world, the flesh and the devil, work independently of one another predominantly. And I want to suggest to you that I think most of the time they work together. Okay? I don't like this idea that it's like the devil made me do it. All right? And you've heard me say before, I think a lot of Christians give the devil a bad reputation, right? Because I think they think he's doing stuff that he's not actually doing. 
I think it's far better to say with every temptation that comes along that you can see some aspect of the devil in it, some aspect of the world and some aspect of the flesh in it. And that's why it's so powerful. But what this means is you're actually in more trouble. (laughs) All right? Because not only are these three things working independently, they're collaborating as a team to take you down. Some of you are going, why did I come to church today? <laughs> you see, beset by every one of these, you would wonder how anyone would ever reach heaven, right? You just go, how, how's there ever going to be a win over this? How are you feeling? Because we've just reached the end of the bad news. Feeling okay? We're going to read a prayer in a minute out of Jude. And I want to give you some, a little bit of context and then we're going to read the scripture. You know, the book of Jude is one chapter long. And I don't have time to explain everything in it. That would take the project about three years. Okay? <laughs> but let me give you the context really briefly. There's bad guys in the church. There's ungodly people have got in the church and they're actually teaching stuff that's not helpful. They're teaching stuff that's false. Now... I want to say this. I'm not saying who these are, but I think false teaching in the church... I mean, if I asked you, I said, do you think that there's false teachers in the Christian church? Yeah, you might, you might say yes, you might say no. And we're all pretty nervous, and I think rightly so. We're all nervous to name the people who are the false teachers. But I think, and I'm not going to name any, I haven't even thought about it that much. I just want to say this to you, is I think there's more of it happening than what you think. There's more happening than what you think. And it's interesting. I mean, you can read, there's lots of books in the New Testament that talk about false teaching in the church. And you kind of read it and you go, oh, that's not us. That's everyone else. That's like the, that's the, that's the cults down the road. Uh, I just want to suggest to you that it may not be. It may be us. And some of you might go, oh, you've been a bit narrow. Well, at some level, the truth gets narrow. All right? We're not bar high here, in case you've come to the... We're not on their team. If you're a bar high, you're welcome, but we're not bar high, all right? Bar high makes a lot of sense. It's like, let's have an each-way bet on everyone, all right? Problem is that Jesus get, makes things really narrow, and he says, if you don't get as narrow as the narrowness that I put out, you're going to miss it. And then you have in, in uh, Jude, you've got God judging Israel because, because they didn't get it right. God judged the devil. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged, is going to judge the false teachers in the church. Um, that's kind of the context for Jude. So let's have a quick look at, uh, at Jude. This is verse 20 to 23. This is not the prayer. This is 20 to 23. But you, beloved, I'll put this in because I reckon this is beautiful. And please hear it in the context of people who are thinking, how are we going to make it? Because they've just heard this whole story about people that didn't make it and God's judgment upon them. How are we going to make it? Listen to this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Isn't that tender? Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. And the Greek understanding of the word behind doubt there is have mercy on people who are at odds with themselves. That's the idea of doubt here. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Beautiful tenderness. 
Now, what's really interesting is uh, Jude moves from this onto a doxology. So I want to quickly explain what a doxology is. And the best way to do that is to show you a clip of Liverpool Football Club playing at the MCG. Here we go. He is ruled out with a slight knock, and Colo Torre's got a tight calf as well. And now, well, Anfield turns into the Melbourne Cricket Ground. This could be some rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone. Thanks for doing no to top of the show in Jakarta the other night. Did you notice that? That's what it was. I mean, seriously, that would we're not even that animated here, are we? <laughs> All right? Maybe that's what we need to, what we need to get some banners and some scars with the project. Well, maybe God's name written on it. <laughs> you know what that is? That's actually a doxology. All right? That's what it is. So let me tell you what a doxology is. A doxology is a form of words that offers praise to God, especially for his work of creation and redemption. Now, what what are they doing? What they're doing is they're offering praise to Liverpool Football Club. John Piper makes a really interesting comment about uh, doxologies. He says this, The main reason people feel awkward about singing or shouting glory to God is simply that he is not as real to them as Liverpool. He doesn't say Liverpool, but... 
He uses other names. I never even heard of them, so I thought, well, that quote's not working for me at all, so I thought I'd just put Liverpool in. So the meaning of doxology is clear to anyone who has ever admired anything. You've all done it. You've, you've given doxologies in the last week about lots of different stuff. But the experience of having your heart sore in admiration to God depends on whether you've ears to hear and eyes to see that above, listen to this, that above and behind every admirable thing on earth stands the magnificence and beauty of God. You need to be able to look through things and see God in there behind it. And so, strictly speaking, you may say this uh, prayer in Jude is not a prayer, it's more of a doxology, but I want to suggest to you that if you're singing or saying worship and praise, it's something of a prayer, and that's why we're looking at it today. Here it is. Now to him. When you could just soak in the richness of this for, for weeks. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So I just want to go through it quickly and then we'll be done. Here's the first part. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is amazing, is it not? Psalm 121 verse 3 to 4 says, He, God, will not let your foot be moved. This is the good news, folks. You've got the world, the flesh and the devil gunning against you, but you've got God for you. All right? Amen? You've got him for you. And his gig, his mode of operation is, I'm going to work to stop my people from stumbling. Listen to Psalm 121, 3 to 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will neither slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is a rich thing for my sons. They love, they love the thought that when they sleep, God doesn't. That's good news for you. It's good news for you that when you stumble, God doesn't. And what's he doing? He's actually working all the time to stop your stumbling. He's working to support you and to help you. This is rich. Don't you need it? Don't you need it? With all the powers arrayed against you, you need someone on your side who's going to work on your behalf to stop you from slipping and stumbling. Amen? You've got to get excited about this. You've got a God who holds on to you more tightly than you can hold on to him. Many of you have heard me use the uh, analogy before. When I walk across the road with my children, they're not that good at holding on to my hand. But I'm very good at holding on to their hand. And that's what it's like with God. And you can be sitting there today and you can be going, I'm really tired. And I don't think I can hold on much longer. And you know what the hope is for you? It ultimately doesn't come down to you. Like there's almost, I was, I was uh, preparing something for the church the other day and it's for Recalibrate that we're doing Sunday nights and uh, people are in and will hear me share it tonight. But, you know, I, one of the things is you had to write your own psalm and I'm going to sing it for you. No, I'm not. No. It's like, <laughs> don't wait quiet. You just go, oh. That's right, thank you. Do you know what I wrote in my psalm? I wrote, it's It's tiring. Why, why do I feel, this is what I wrote in this little psalm thing that I wrote, and it's nothing anywhere near as grand as 150 we've got, right? So I don't think I'm making any kind of comparison, but I was writing this thing and I'm just going, why do I feel like I'm so close to failure? Why do I feel, why do I have to try all the time? I, I get tired. I get tired of staying 
strong in a sense. And, you know, by the end of the writing this thing, I've just gone, man, there's actually, there was a part of me I just thought, I actually need to say sorry to God. Because I actually think it's my energies that are the critical component in my faithfulness. And I want to say to you, that's not ultimately the critical component in your faithfulness. Now, do you need to stay in the love of Christ? Yes, Jude says that. Do you need to pray in the Spirit? Yes. Are there things you need to do? Yes. But at the end of the day, your hope is not in your ability to hang on. Your hope is in God's ability to hold on to you. True? And that's good news. Because I'm just telling you, we suck at hanging on sometimes. We're really bad at it. And we let go. And we're in the middle of a four-lane highway down on the Gold Coast and we let go of his hand. And what does he do? Well, he just doesn't let go. And anyone who's been a Christian long enough knows that that's happened. There's times where you give up. And what happens? Well, somehow he gets you back. Because that's what he does. Somehow there's this impulse within you. It's just like, I've got to get back to him. He's my only hope. He's my only help. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And what about this one? And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Now, let me just say something here. That is the last place you would want to be as a sinner. All right? That's just going to, I mean, it's just messy. It's like, how are we going to clean that up? All right? That's the kind of territory. If you've got a Bible there, you can have a quick look. I'd love it if you just turn to Isaiah 6 or an app or whatever. Isaiah 6 verse 1. Isaiah 6 verse 1 says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, you kind of go, well, it doesn't make much difference to me, but it did to him. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, this is Isaiah, sees his vision, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Excuse me, as the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. He goes on to say this, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said to me, I'm stuffed. That's kind of the Australian version, right? I'm stuffed. Um, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, you can reinterpret that. I mean, if we had a message for Australians, it'd be an int- I mean, you wouldn't want kids to read that, right? Because if an Australian gets in that, they'd just go, I'm stuffed, right? That's the enemy and they would use expletives, okay? Especially if you're on a job site. If Jesus shows up to the tradies working on the new house over the back of the, uh, the hall here, man, you're just going to hear some stuff at that point in time, right? Because a sinner getting in the presence of God is a fearful thing. It would be the last place you'd want to be. But do you know what God does? If we read on in Isaiah 6, and I haven't got this on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles there, in verse 6 to 7 it says this, Then one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You know what? What does God do? He purifies the impure so they can be in his presence. That's what's going on in Isaiah 6. True? Did you see that? He hasn't finished on that. True? It won't be you. 
you're not going to land in God's presence in the fearful fearfulness of God's presence in terms of respect. I mean, you get in the presence of someone who's all-powerful and it's going to be fearful, all right? Now, not in the sense that you're going to get hurt, but you're going to give some serious respect to someone who's all-powerful. But you know the cool thing is, you're not going to be there unsuitably dressed. You're not going to be there in a defiled place when God puts you there because he is going to purify you so that you're blameless. In fact, you wouldn't be able to get yourself clean. You can't get yourself clean. doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to be able to do it, but God does it for you. Look at this. I'm going to read this. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the precious things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, hopefully you're sitting there and you're going, why did he put that in? Because you know right at the end of that, it says like a precious lamb without blemish or without spot. You know what? That is exactly the same Greek word in the original language as the word for blameless at the end of Jude. You see that? So what God's going to do is he's going to make you as spotless as Christ. And then you're going to fit. Now, I was only talking about this last night, I think it was. When I was over in America, um, we went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And uh, we went down to Washington, D.C. for the weekend. We just had a backpack. And um, so we just stuffed whatever clothes we could fit in. And I thought, what would be really cool... I'll pack, here you go, you just, you're getting a feel for something to go fashion sense right here, and there's not much. Uh, pack shorts and a t-shirt for the Saturday, we'll do jeans and a, and a shirt for the Sunday, right? So, we do that Saturday, and then Sunday, I'm not even making this up, it's going to be like 31 degrees, and we're, we'd planned on riding bikes for most of Sunday, alright? And I'm just going, there's no way knowing that I'm going to wear jeans, okay? Now, the problem was... I couldn't wear the same shirt as I'd worn the previous day because it stunk. My mate did. He just thought that was cool. He goes, I'm just wearing one set of clothes all weekend. I'm just going, oh, brother, that's unholy. <laughs> but that's, that's what he did. And I just, I can't do it, right? So, you know what? I ended up in that place where I, I had limited options and I had to wear a shirt. Wow, here we go. The females, you'll stop listening to me after this. but I wore a check shirt with striped shorts. <laughs> See? Yeah, that's right. They're still in horror. They're just going, Lord, have mercy upon that man. <laughs> and you know, we went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church. You know what the dudes are wearing when we went there? Sorry, I should add, check shirt, striped shorts, and with running shoes. <laughs> so, it's bad. I don't typically do this, not even at home. All right? This is like, this is worse than yard clothes. Okay. <laughs> So I get, we get to Capitol Hill Baptist, and what do you reckon the men are wearing at Capitol Hill Baptist? Yeah, they're all in suits. And they're probably looking at us going, those guys need to get saved. <laughs> those down and out, they must be street people. And you know what? I just felt massively out of place. So we sat in the back row, which is what you do. And then they asked everyone to move forward. And my mate goes, come on, we should go forward. I'm just going, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> Stay right here. But you know what? You get to uh, the day when Jesus comes back and he's going to plant you right in the midst of his glory and that's going to feel exactly right because you're going to be spotless, without blemish. All right? You're not going to have 
checks and stripes, ill-matched. Or, or dirty shirt and dirty pants because you wore it in the hot the day before. And you know what's amazing about what God's going to do when he presents us before himself is he's going to do it with great joy. You know, it's, it's probably the case that there would be some of us here who would think God's pretty, probably begrudging. Like he does good things and he's like, he grits his teeth, he goes, well, I said I had to do it, so I guess I better do it. All right? Or he's got a frown. Or you, somehow you get the judgment day and he's, he's going, how the hell did he get in? Well, he doesn't say hell, but <laughs> how the heck did he get in? Or she get in? That wasn't meant to happen. I'm not happy. See, God's not like that. He actually is working for your benefit to stop you from stumbling and making sure that he's uh, presenting you blameless at the end of the day and he's going to be really stoked about it. And I wonder if I asked you today, at a deep kind of functional level, do you actually think God's happy? He's really happy all the time. Now, you might go... Well, doesn't he get cranky about stuff? Yes, he does, all right? And that just tells you that God has multiple emotions at the same time. And you might go, well, that's weird, but you do, all right? Humans do all the time. You have multiple emotions at the same time. But let me give you some scriptures that talk about the fact that God's stoked and he's really happy pretty much all the time. Here we go, here's the first one. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he what? Excellent. So today, he's not bound or restricted by anything. So today, he's just going to get about doing what he wants to do. And he does the stuff that pleases him. And that's actually really good news for you. So when stuff happens, it's not like he's a frowning, begrudging giver. He's just actually really happy about it, and he just wanted to do it. You have a good morning, you have a good prayer time, and he really helps you out. Maybe he comes through when you pray about something, you just go, that's amazing. I feel like he's got less, of good, less good stuff now because he came through. And he's just going, no, I just wanted to do it. I just thought it'd be cool. And I don't want to lower the transcendence of God in that, but you've got to hear that in, in the psalm here, is that he's just really happy with everything he does. There's no one that's bigger than him. He's got no, there's no cosmic bouncer that gets his arm up behind his back and says, see, you're supposed to do this, and he forces God to do stuff. He just does stuff that he wants to do all the time. What about this, Jeremiah 32, 40 to 41? I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That is amazing. We live in that reality of that deal. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Listen to this. I will rejoice in doing them what? He, he just gets a kick out of doing cool stuff for you. I live in that. True? Live in that. Pray in that. So you pray and you just go, well, I'm not trying to get something out of him he doesn't want to give. Let's just pray knowing that he loves to do good stuff for his kids. Gets a kick out of it. What about this one? John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy... Whose joy? So here's happiness, right? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. You get this? He's going, I want them to be as happy as I am. And you might go, nah, he's talking about joy. And if you've been here at the project long enough, you've heard me rant and rave about that. All right? The split between joy and happiness is not a good split. To say that joy doesn't involve happiness, it's just going way too far in my view. It does. And what about this one? 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. Paul talks about the gospel of the glory of the what, God? Blessed. Now... You know, the Greek word for blessed here can also be translated as what? 
Have a guess. Happy. Excellent. Well done. So you get that sense. When God's saying he's blessed, well, he's happy. He gets around doing stuff. No one's telling him what to do. He's getting a big kick out of it. His happiness is infinite. And one of the things that he's going to be particularly happy about, according to Jude here, is that he's going to present you before his father with great joy. Last one. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. This is related to his happiness. You know, God is the only non-contingent being in the universe. Do you know what that means? He's the only one who's not dependent upon anything or anyone else. Which means it's actually possible for him to be happy and for no one ever to thwart his happiness. But it's also possible for him to have glory, majesty and dominion because he's not dependent upon anyone else. You see, the question that people often ask and it was asked of me recently at a rugby game, who made God? And my response was, without going into the details of the philosophical argument that we went into, my response was basically, there has to be someone who's not contingent on anyone else for their existence. That's how you get contingent things, all right? That's how you get stuff. It's like, and I said, then where'd you come from? He goes, my mum and dad. And I said, where'd they come from, their mum and dad? I said, right, at some point in time, everyone's got to, you can't have an infinite number of regressions. At some point in time, everyone's got to get to the point where there was something that wasn't actually made and it was just there. Now, that can either be some weird kind of vacuum with gases in it. We have plenty of those at my house with four boys. All right? Or it can be God. And it makes a whole lot more sense to me that the non-contingent being is someone who's intelligent and someone who engages and someone who's relational and someone who loves. At the end of the day, God is the only one. The Bible would say, and we would say here, that every other God is false. And you might say, well, that's a bit intolerant. But by definition, intolerance is disagreeing with someone else but loving them anyway. Is that not what we're called to do? Tolerance is not everyone agreeing with each other. Tolerance is loving... Uh, in, uh, sorry, sorry, tolerance is disagreeing and loving them anyway and what you see here there's only one god there's only one savior nothing else actually saves things may help for a little while but they don't actually get the job done and one thing you do notice here is that jude's saying the father the son and the holy spirit are all part of the trinity and they're all part of uh, got to be careful saying they're part of god they they are the three persons of god that make up god and you might go how is there one God and there's three persons? Well, I don't know, okay? As soon as I find out, I'll let you know. I'll be sure to let you know. But I, he's God, right? So if I can understand him, that probably makes me God. And there's just going to be stuff with God that you just can't get, get your head around. There are three persons to the Godhead, and Jude's saying, look, they're all involved here. We're talking about God. And at the end of the day, Jesus is actually going to be the judge, and he's going to be the saviour of people it's not right sometimes you can kind of get this view of god that god the father is kind of the cranky one and jesus is the nice one and the holy spirit's the one who kind of helps you it's kind of not how it rolls all right because the person is actually going to be doing the judging 
on Judgment Day when Jesus wraps everything up is Jesus himself. It's not cranky dad, all right? It's kind of like you get this idea, God the Father's a cranky old man and he gets really frustrated when the kids kind of walk dirt in on his rug in his lounge room or something, you know, that kind of vibe. That's not how it is. And Jude's kind of saying, look, they're all in it together. They're all in the saving together. They're all in the judgment together. They're all in it. They're all one. And here's where we finish. This is where I'm going to finish today. Listen to what he says right at the end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority. Listen to this. Before all time, what tense is that? Past. So God had glory, majesty, dominion and authority in the past. And now, which is what tense? Present. I mean, leaving that. God has... Glory, majesty, dominion and authority right now over everything. From people who give it to him and those who don't. In forever. What tense is that? Future. It's never going to change. It's never, ever going to change. How would your life be different if you lived in that reality all of the time?